This is Trading for Keeps. I'm Brian. And this is Michael. Today, we are going to discuss last week's um, House Financial Services Committee hearing on the GameStop short squeeze. The, the hearing was entitled GameStopped. Who wins and loses when short sellers, social media, and retail investors collide? Well, Brian, you've watched the whole thing or listened to the whole thing. I listened to the whole thing as well. I think we've both got, there's a lot to unpack with it. Um, I want to start off with my favorite character, though, Keith Gill. What, I, what were your thoughts on Keith? Okay, so I, I love Keith Gill. I love his presence there. And for people who watched it, you notice Keith, you know, he usually wears this headband and, you know, he kind of has this like mullet look, right? But he cleaned himself up for the house hearing. He put on a suit, but then behind him, he had this like whiteboard and he, you know, he had this poster of, you know, the, the, the cat there. He's like, you know, keep hanging on, or I, I, you can find the exact phrase. And then he had his headband hanging up behind him, which was just classic. And then, you know, I think he answered out of all the people there, you know, there was a question that was asked you know, to the, the, the folks, you know, how many people do you have you with you in the room? Right. Um, and, you know, you're under oath. You have, I mean, you should answer honestly, but you're also under oath and he's the only person in the room and he's the only one who can like answer yes or no questions definitively. I think of any of the group, when anyone asked him a yes or no question, Keith Gill, the man with no other lawyers in the room, the man without the advanced degrees, non-CEO, ordinary Joe is the only one who came off as honest and credible and genuine out of that whole thing, at least to me. And so I give kudos to Keith Gill. I'm sure that was a lot of pressure to do that. And, you know, it was a little intense situation, but I thought he represented himself well. I mean, he was asked, you know, what do you think of the stock now today, you know, and, you know, he, he considered himself, I would buy in today, you know, and he's under oath. So I, he still feels strongly about it. I mean, even though it has, you know, definitely not definitely off of its highs, but um, he's, yeah, I thought, he's expanded I, his position. I think he expanded his position on Friday. Yeah. Before, so there you go. Yeah. I, I think I saw that on, uh, on Reddit that he's actually, he's, he's now gone, you know, it, he's got in more. I loved his opening statement too. I'm not, he goes, I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not a cat. Loved that. And then he also threw in the little shout out to Wall Street Bats by saying, in short, I like the stock. Yeah, I, so, I got a huge kick. I was dying. I was so dying. He, they all had opening statements. And his opening statement, I think it was really well crafted. Like he talked about his history with the market, you know? And so he, again, you know, he actually struggled through the financial crisis, you know, and there are periods of time where he was unemployed or he's making only 40,000 a year. You know, he had, he had a family and like, you know, he had a recent, you know, tragedy in the family this year, you know, with, uh, and so, you know, he comes off as, you know, just an ordinary person, you know, found a great idea. You know, it, it talked about his YouTube channel had like very few people, you know, he was live streaming to not that many people. I mean, yes, he's posting on Reddit and he later got a big following, but you know, he, he started out as a small guy, right. And, you know, he wasn't famous or anything. And, you know, he, he just had his thesis. He believed in himself. He did this. He, he's the true rags to riches story out of this whole thing. And I, I, you know, every other, you know, you read the other opening statements, it's like, oh yeah, you know, oh, I, I went, I went to a public school. Like that's the most relatable thing I can say to you in my public statement. Right. You know, and that kind of, okay. Oh, my parents were, you know, immigrants and stuff. Okay. That that's great too. But I mean, Keith Gill, I mean, kudos to Keith. Amazing job. Amazing story. Uh, I love the story. I do think it's worth acknowledging. I don't know how much traction this has got. And I know it's been out there if you, if you're looking at it, but he was hit with a a potential class action lawsuit. uh, Just, two days before the hearing. Uh, are you up to date on that? Yeah, I saw, I saw that on the news. And so I think some of those general comments, you know, if you, if you follow stocks a lot, you'll notice that if you ever pull up on your, like your Apple stock app, you'll see like, there's a lot of the news or press releases are these law firms suing companies for, you know, certain price action, certain lawsuits. So I'm not sure if, you know, that again, the suit is going to be 
you know, is going to be thrown out? Is it legitimate? But I'm sure that there are plenty of law firms and plenty of, you know, public legal defense funds would be happy to rush to Keith's aid. I mean, I have no doubt, like, you know, folks like the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Cato Institute. I mean, he is like an American hero right now. I'm sure he has, like, everyone on Reddit would probably donate a few dollars to his legal defense fund. And I'm sure a bunch of, you know, high profile lawyers would love to take that case to defend Keith just for the reputation. You know, I'm it. sure he would. I think the ones that are even uh, taking the case of the plaintiff side are most likely doing it for the same reason, for the publicity and everything. He's actually being sued by uh, an individual that sold $200,000 $200, worth of call options, which I'm assuming resulted in many more hundreds of thousands of dollars in losses. Um, so and basically what the what the suit alleges, and I you know, I did a quick search on FINRA, and he is a registered agent. I mean, he's uh, or he he holds a series seven license, he holds a series twenty-four license. Those are difficult to get. You have certain rules and regulations that you have to follow. I'm not up to date on that. I'm not gonna dive into it. I just wanted to make sure that we acknowledge that there are two sides to the story on Keith Gill. I love him, don't get me wrong, I love him, he's great. Um, but I just think it's worth noting that you know. There is a little bit of controversy there. We don't know how that's going to sort out yet. Maybe our next thing is to have a, have another series uh, seven person on that they can. Yeah, talk maybe about. we find another law professor who's willing to opine about this. I mean, I almost think again, this is an interesting area of like, because you notice at the hearing, it wasn't just these financial folks. They actually invited the CEO of Reddit to the hearing as well. And so a lot of the issues are about you know free speech, right? So can you? What what level of speech can you talk about these things? Are you, and you know how does that conflict with securities law, right? And you know those regulations. I mean, I think that's an interesting you know point of topic. And I, again, maybe if I already rank the people of how well they did, I thought Keith Gill did an amazing job. I also thought the CEO of Reddit did a really good job. Um, and he, he gets a lot of criticism on Reddit sometimes for the policies they implement. But he defended Wall Street bets. You know, he could have thrown them under the bus, and he yep. didn't do it. And he's like, you know, this is a legitimate you know group of folks. And there was you know one other of the, you know, the folks talking at the, at the hearing, you know, said, oh, like, you know, Wall Street Bets was saying all these anti-Semitic things. They're calling me all these terrible names. You know, they're threatening. And the, the guy was like, well, we searched Wall Street Bets. We couldn't find a single comment like that. We found like one and it was deleted like within, you know, a few minutes and it, like it didn't get any upvotes. So we don't know what you're talking about that, you know, Wall Street Bets was harassing you or saying these derogatory things. You know, he called him out on it and he's also under oath, right? So, I mean, um, you know, I don't know. I, I think, Reddit could have easily just said, oh, yeah, these are, you know, terrible people. You know, this is just the nature of the internet, you know. But no, he, he defended that as, like, you know, a legitimate subreddit, you know, and it's a, a valued part of the community. And, you know, they are concerned about, you know, there's certain issues about, you know, they asked about anonymity. Is that a bad thing? And, you know, he defended anonymity as it, it's, you know, that's how the how our platform operates and functions. And we don't, we don't want people to be able to be forced to reveal their identities. So I thought he did a really good job, you know, defending his platform and, you know, representing the company. Yeah, I think so too. I think some of the attacks on Reddit uh, were, you know, I think he did a great job defending them. And I feel like most of those were mostly grandstanding. I mean, there was a good amount of uh, a, a lot. I don't, I have the list in front of me here, but it's, you know, there's several dozen people on that committee and some of them were there, asked some good questions. I, I really appreciated some of them, but a lot of them there were, were, were there for grandstanding, were there for political points. And that was on both sides. Um, you know, you had some that say, you know, well, what you know, they have should people should be making uh, people should be making their decisions on trading based on financial information, based on whether or not it's good or bad. But, you know, I think that that was I think some of that even showed some of the ignorance of the market of like you don't really somebody has to always take the other side of the trade. If everyone is forced to make the right decision, there's not going to be anybody there to take the other side of the trade. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's like, if we, I, I agree with you there. If you educate everybody, you know, to the, to the thing, there's still buyers and sellers. Right. And, you know, it's a free market at the end of the day. And I think, again, a lot of people were on that side. I, I think you're right. They got into a lot of 
things that seem unrelated to GameStop, you know, where they were talking about, you know, hey, should we have, you know, you know, transaction taxes on stock trading, you know, is the Chinese government on Webull, you know, they were just, you know, should we have, you know, should we use blockchain to like, you know, do T plus zero settlement, you know, I mean, I guess these all are related to stock trading to some extent. And, you know, this, but I, I think it definitely deviated away from GameStop and what happened in that moment to larger I, issues. I, I think that blockchain is relevant. So you mentioned that if you're okay with you, let's dive into that a little bit, because I, I love blockchain. I love Bitcoin. Um, what's it trading at? It's trading at like 57,000 last site. Uh. <laughs> super so, high. Michael, are, do you have a position in blockchain or, or in Bitcoin? To be honest here, for the podcast. Do I have a, yes, I have a position in Bitcoin. I'm okay. long Bitcoin. Okay. I, I'm long uh, Mara. So I've, I'm, I'm, okay. I'm, so like maybe, you know, Bitcoin and they own Bitcoin. So there you go. Yeah. So essentially, all right. One of the things was that I, I did find this, this was in the written testimony. This was mentioned several times by, you know, by the CEO of Citadel, by the CEO of um, of Robinhood, basically what there was the reason Robinhood restricted selling what their excuse that they finally settled on was liquidity. They didn't have enough cash. So, so be, be careful with that because Vlad never says they had a liquidity problem. No, so he just... didn't. He said like, but they he did, but he didn't. And so we'll he can't, he can't use the magic L word, but he's like, we didn't have enough capital. We didn't <laughs> so, have enough capital, but we never so. had a liquidity problem. But we had to do this because of the regulation. Yeah. yeah. But anyways, so, but the one thing they said to you was, it, that was ultimately the problem. It's we needed to come up, we had to make a larger deposit. And, you know, and, and in his written testimony, and in, um, in the written testimony by uh, Ken Griffin, the, uh, CEO, uh, the CEO of Citadel, they both called for reducing the settlement time. Right now it's T plus two. So if you trade on Tuesday, that trade actually settles by Wednesday. And what the, uh, there's a clearinghouse. So just real quick, the trade, when you make a trade, you make a trade with your broker. The broker sends it to an exchange, most likely through a market maker, goes to an exchange, the trade is made. And then event, then it actually goes to a clearinghouse and the clearinghouse finally settles the trade and makes sure, okay, we've got these shares from this entity and we're going to give them to this entity and back and forth and you know everybody gets them two days later um so there's what they're saying is though that if we reduce that time we don't have to have as much cash because you're supposed to the brokers have to provide cash to back up those transactions while the settlement's taking place so in the instance with gamestop all of a sudden it was 20 dollars stock now it's a 500 dollars stock and it was getting traded just mass amounts of volume that's a lot more money that they've come up with now most of the brokers didn't have a huge problem with it but you know, Robinhood did. They're 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 a small fish in a in a big pond. And one of the solutions that was named by Warren Davidson, a Republican from Ohio, he said that blockchain is the is you know the architecture of blockchain could provide instant settlement. Mark Cuban, Shark Tank investor, he jumped in on Twitter and said the same thing. He said, long term instant settlement, blockchain is there for it. GameStop closed that day at its lowest point in like three weeks, four weeks, uh, Bitcoin has now made new highs day after day. So, I mean, I think blockchain is a great technology and it can be used for a lot of different types of, it's a technology that can be a lot, used in a lot of different circumstances. And one, I think this is an example of where blockchain could be utilized. I don't, I don't know if there's other technologies that I feel like in our day and age, there probably should be technologies that enable T plus zero settlement. And just saying, you know, as frequent traders as we are, I think we, I think generally most people, who are trading stocks actively or, or day traders or active traders or swing traders would want T plus zero settlement. I think that's a universally, you know, thing that everyone would want. And 
to Robin Hood, you know, why would Robin Hood want that? Again, so I don't know if they're trying to deflect blame. This is kind of the thing, you know, the, you know, hey, you know, I'm involved in a sex scandal. Let's just shoot some missiles at some other country while we deflect the blame of what really happened, right? You know, <laughs> yes. so, I mean, you know, Vlad is like, oh, I'm a, I'm a man for the people now, you know, I, after I made this kind of kind of big mess up here. So, you know, I'm going to like say, you know, T plus here, I'm on everyone, I'm on all the little, the little guy's side right here. And, you know, hey, you know, forget about all this other stuff. I think T plus zero could have helped Rob and I think Robin Hood said that T plus zero could have helped them because they wouldn't have had to post that much money if everything settled immediately. So I think that idea is like, you know, if it was T plus two, we had these larger financial requirements. If it was T plus one, we'd have a little bit less financial requirements and then T plus zero would have had a little bit less. Now, what if it stopped? You know, what would happen? I think that's a hypothetical that we don't know the answer to, but he's saying it would have been a less of a problem. It would have been T plus zero from my understanding. And, I, I, and I've listened to Vlad give other, he, he doesn't, uh, another interview on this other podcast called All In where they kind of talk about this. So I might be confusing my sources of information. Vlad talked about this, but that was, I think that's the argument or why T plus zero could help Robin Hood as well. But as a trader, I want T plus zero. I, I think we are all against the, you know, pattern day trader rules. We want T plus zero. This enables, you know, greater ability to trade and to go in and out of positions, you know, just faster and quicker and, you know, without being kind of locked out of your account. So I think it levels the playing field and it, and we have the technology, and so why, why the T plus two just seems antiquated to me. You know, if we if we can do it, we should be doing it. But um, but I guess that does require certain legislation and certain you know technologies to be there to, in order to do this for everybody. I mean, considering how much trading happens on a day to day basis, I'm sure that's a massive amount, and you know maybe this is a non trivial problem. We have to get some computer programmers to figure this out. I think I think it can be done. I think you're right, but I think I think the SEC might be able to. Just coming off the top of my head, I'm not. A, absolute expert on this but from the way that you know we went from t5 to t3 to t2 i believe that was mostly done within the sec not through reg- legislation it was just done through regulation I-, I believe that the same thing could uh could certainly happen through there without any legislation because i feel like you know i mean even right now what we got the covid relief package it's 600 pages it's not just unemployment and stimulus money there's 600 pages of other stuff in there so anytime something goes through congress everyone wants to earmark everything and add all these other things in and then you know and then if let's say it happens to be a partisan where nobody from one side chimes in and it's it's bound to be repealed for one reason or another when the next party takes over so i i think that sec could probably do it um you know, they have a process to go through. It's like 180 days. So there's nothing that could have been done. But I think it would also, it would take away all the excuses. You know, I don't think there's anything anyone could have jumped in there in the middle of GameStop and said, oh, let's just do T plus zero and everything will be good. You know, but I think this exposed the a weakness in the system. And now it, I think it is up to the SEC to kind of come in there and say, okay, let's see what we can do to at least get T plus zero or even instant. Yes. So I, I think this is an interesting topic. And it's, again, we have all the eyes on this testimony. I mean, there, you know, congressional testimonies, you know, these happen all the time and nobody tunes in, right? But this is like we broadcast on CNBC, you know, this is your time to shine in the sun, right? And so you can politically grandstand because now this is the time that you finally get the attention of the American public. And I guess, you know, if you, if you really care about T plus zero, I mean, this is your chance to, you know, get up there and you, you believe in blockchain. And I don't know what constituents live in his district. Maybe he has some computer programmers in his district. It's like, aha, you know, you know, we use blockchain, maybe that'll employ, you know, or maybe some contracts will flow our way. Or maybe he's being funded by, you know, blockchain people. I don't know what his, you know, interests are. I'm just saying, you know. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure his interests either. He didn't seem to know about it that well because I feel like he had a hard time articulating a follow-up question. So I don't, I don't, I don't think he's a blockchain expert. But he just managed to, uh, he managed that to throw that word in there. And I didn't even see that getting a lot of traction. I thought I was going to get more traction um, out there in the news media, but I didn't really see any, even like CoinDesk and that, you know, that usually promote that stuff. I didn't, I didn't see much. But I do think that, 
you know, certain people heard it. And like I said, Bitcoin has continued to continue to climb here in recent days. So I don't think it was a negative in any way, shape or form for the cryptocurrencies. So, so I'll, I'll ask you a follow up then. So, Michael, what did you think of Vlad's testimony in general? You know, so what do, what do you how do you think of what do you if you were to give its performance a scale of one to ten? How did Vlad do? Um, I would give him about a three. I wasn't very impressed with him. I mean, he did answer some questions, but he did a lot of a lot of delays. I know he was polite, but he thanked everybody for every single question in a very, very slow voice when everyone only had five minutes to ask him questions. Thank you, Congresswoman, for that very important question. I really greatly appreciate that question at this moment. And like all of a sudden there's 30 seconds gone, right? So so do, do you think that's maybe so like the lawyers in the room with Vlad, you know, could like type something on cue cards and be like, here, here's your choices, Vlad. You know, you can say these things. Maybe, maybe that's actually showing Vlad's intelligence there, you know, or the intelligence of his team. They coached him. You gotta, you gotta buy time, you know, take a delay a game penalty, right? And then, uh, you know, then let me answer, right? And he, you know, and I, I get it. I know exactly why he did it. And, you know, maybe that's the game he was playing, but I just wouldn't, you know, for being democratizing the market and everything that he says he's doing, um, he didn't come across like that. He came across as a player on Wall Street. That's how he came across to me was he was protecting his own interest. He was protecting his shareholders interest, who you and me cannot be shareholders, only private accredited investors. Oh, be, we could talk about that. That is his own separate talk of it. Let, well, let's return right. to that later. Let's keep but that in the, the back of our minds. That was there. The fact that that came out, I think that was a great question. I can't remember who asked that question, but that was a great question that was asked to him. And he could not give a good answer. He basically had to say, no, we're funded by billionaires. We're funded by the super elite. And um, Congresswoman Cindy Acne from Iowa, um, she asked a really good question or she made a really good point when he kept saying, oh, our customers, our customers. And she goes, don't call your users your customers because they're not they are your product you are selling their information to this to citadel who is ultimately your customer and it, as a business person i believe the person that pays you is your customer right and whatever you're selling is your product um so she hit the nail on the head i thought i thought that was one of the more substances exchanges and i thought she really pointed out uh some of the flaws in his argument you know vlad did a i think ultimately a, a disservice by not just finally owning up Yes, we had a liquidity problem. No, we didn't. It was back and forth. He basically said he did without actually admitting that. So the, here, here's the problem. So Vlad went on CNBC in an interview and said, we do not have a liquidity problem. So if Vlad now says in the testimony, he had a liquidity problem, that means he lied on CNBC, right? But if he keeps to that line, then he sounds like an idiot because because he admits we didn't have enough money. So when normal people here say we didn't have enough money, that means you had a liquidity problem. But he says, no, I mean, our, we had you know, money in our bank accounts. We just didn't have enough money to help people do all their trading. So and, you had a liquidity problem. <laughs> but no, Vlad, Vlad can't say that because that means he lied and that would be dishonest of him. So Vlad is stuck in, a, in this circular thing where he can't say the definition of a word, which is just you know, terrible. Exactly. And, <laughs> and I think that's why, that's why I give him such a low rating because he, if you know what? He got caught. You just need to come out and admit it, right? Okay, you know what? We didn't have enough cash to cover it. Somebody says, did you have a liquidity problem? if that's what you want to call it, you know, he could, you could just got a cop to it, but the way he keeps talking in circles, you know, I was also disappointed a little bit on how a lot of the right, the right wing, the political grandstand that came from the right was basically defending Robin hood. They kept saying things like, Oh, Robin hood said the regulation was the problem. So if you should be mad at anybody, be mad at the regulation. Well, I'm like, no, no, no. Robin hood settled 
on that answer. And you are, you know, kind of connecting dots that aren't necessarily there. The rules were written ahead of time. They came in to being a broker and the rules were already written. For you not to know the rules and not being able to play by the rules, that's on you. So, so here, I'm, I'm going to play Vlad here. And this is kind of his answer. Again, you got to tease it out of him because he, he didn't do the best job presenting it. But he kept saying, oh, this is like a one in, you know, multi-million dollar scenario. You know, multiple, multiple, one out of a million, one out of three million, one out of five million. This was, you know, this was a corner event so remote. We couldn't have possibly prepared for this. This is like, you know, a Texas ice storm. How would you have expected this to happen? You know, we could, we, there's no way. There's no way. So why, why should have I had the money on hand? I, I couldn't have known that. I couldn't have known that. Is that is that is that a fair response from Vlad, or is that you know, or you just don't buy that? I just don't buy it because we didn't see the we didn't see the same level of issues with the rest of the uh, with the rest of the brokers out there. I know there was margin. I, from my understanding, is most of the other restrictions were margin restrictions, which are super common. Those happen all the time. Anytime a, a stock is getting pretty volatile, they just say, "Okay, no margin. You have to pay. You have to put the cash up." Uh, but most brokers also have bigger uh bigger accounts behind them too and they can fund a couple of billion dollars extra when they need to especially on a short term to a clearinghouse so the fact that they came in and weren't i mean it basically it shows their inexperience and i know there's gonna be learning curves and it's gonna be growing uh growing pains and everything and you know maybe this was an unpredictable thing but at this point moving forward i think everyone's got an obligation to say what went wrong how do we fix it Legislation wise, I think there is room for legislation. Personally, that's my opinion. I think that, um, you know, regulation number one, getting us to instant settlement. And I also think that um, legislation wise, we might, there's two things I thought of. Um, Brokers should provide unfettered access to the markets. They do not restrict their clients from buying or selling any stock, equity, ETF, anything like that without 24 hours notice. I think that, you know what, if they decide to, for one reason or other, they need to notify all their clients 24 hours ahead of time. Um, and then, you know, one other thing, and this is probably, uh, I don't know, this would probably be bet with resistance, but this is my opinion. I think, you know what, a restriction on how soon you can open up a brokerage, kind of a waiting period, like they have with guns, might not be a bad thing either. Because how many people were all of a sudden opening up a Robinhood account, trying to open up a brokerage account so they could get in on this GameStop action, Right. If you're rushing into it like that, kind of like you're rushing to go buy a gun, you're probably not thinking everything through. You might be looking to do something stupid. So I think it's fine if you're involved in the markets, you, you're already aware of them. But when you're just rushing in, having no clue what you're doing, trying to be a 24, 48-hour waiting period until you can actually trade would actually be a, a good idea. So those are those are Michael Johnson's crazy legislative ideas. So I, I think those are very interesting ideas, um, especially I think the 24 hour notice. I mean, I think at the very least you should give that as a platform. Ideally as a platform, you shouldn't have any problems with any security. So here's a question that I never got clarity from Vlad on. And I don't know why this wasn't really asked more, but I, maybe the question, the answer was pretty obvious to the people in the room. But you know, they restricted trading in 11 securities or whatever number it was. But why not the others? I mean, and those just happen to be the Reddit ones. I mean, you could have just said Apple. Apple seems like it's highly traded on your platform. Like, why didn't we just restrict that one, you know? So it seemed there was a subjective element on what you chose to restrict and what you chose not to restrict that day. And maybe it was just like, these were the most traded things yesterday. Is that the reason we used it? Or we were just, we anticipated these would be the most traded things today. Like, you have a crystal ball, so you know that these are gonna be the most traded ones in the morning. So that was not clearly answered to me. And I don't know if that was clearly asked, but that seems like a, you know, there's something subjective about what you chose to limit. If you, the idea that you had to limit, I get that. Okay. So we weren't prepared for that. So, you, so, okay. So what did Vlad do wrong? 
admit what the problem was clearly admit the problem okay yeah. apologize for the problem admit the mistake right but, but but also vlad i mean earlier you could have planned for this you know you know th- you know three months beforehand or one week beforehand you could have given more notice you could have given the answer clearly of why we can't do this instead of having to go on cnbc and saying not a liquidity problem and you know and just try to hide the ball but at the end of all this i still don't get why it was those 11 or 13 i think it was 11 that he kept saying in his testimony but why it was only certain ones and not others so why why it was those? How did you choose those? Still don't know to this day. Well, I think that goes back to you know what was getting the short squeezes and everything, and you know everyone came up there and under oath they all said we did nothing wrong. We abide by all the rules and regulations that we were supposed to. Um, you know, and of course they're going to say that they're not going to come out and say yeah, you know what we really were in cahoots and everything. And like no, they've dug their hole. You know, they've made their bed. They're, they have to lay in it at this point. So there's no way they could come back and say, ah, you know what? We did We did coordinate the whole thing. And I'm not accusing them of doing that. One congressman did ask, and I, uh, it was unfortunately almost a demonstration of ignorance. I don't have his name in front of me because I didn't manage to find his clip. But he basically asked, what, what's there to stop everybody from coordinating? He goes, okay, I'm not accusing you guys of doing anything wrong. But he said, what would stop you know, the market maker and the broker and the hedge fund and everybody from coordinating in the background. Now, he also he brought in the clearinghouse, which was his that was his fatal error, because then the, the Citadel CEO, the question was to him. He goes, what can we do to prevent this? Essentially, this, he also brought in the mentioned clearinghouse. He goes, and if you own the clearinghouse too, Citadel CEO managed to take up three minutes of his time by just saying how we're not a clearinghouse, we're not a clearinghouse, we're not a clearinghouse. He completely avoided the actual question the congressman was asking. And unfortunately, I do have to leave that at the congressman's foot because he didn't ask the right questions. He came in ignorant to the situation, ignorant to the make, to what actually makes a market work tick. So he wasn't able to articulate the right question. And he, he you know, basically he got beat, you know. So here's my here's my criticism to Congress. So again, because this was a common theme. So if you're Congressman one, and, and this happens at all the testimonies, Google did this and Facebook did this when they're called up there. The banks do this when they're called up there. So here's okay. So if I'm a congressman, I've seen these past years. Here's what I do. Number one, if I ask a yes or no question, you have to answer yes or no. I don't want to hear any other words out of your mouth. And if you do, that means that like you were you were skipping you. Okay, you you've decided to decline to answer my question. You're you're I'm going to hold you in contempt of Congress. Okay, so when I ask a yes or no question, you're going to answer yes or you're going to answer no. And you can say to the best of my knowledge, yes. To the best of my knowledge, no. But it's going to be yes or no. And we're not going to talk to try to answer a different question or dodge. Okay. And number two, you're not going to thank me for any question I ever ask you. You're not going to answer. You're not going to say thank you, anything. You're going to go immediately to the answer of my question. That's how I would start my testimony. I would say, please do that for everybody else following this. We do not need you to waste our time. And I think some Congress people did get upset. They did say, hey, you know, if you're so good at filibustering, filibustering, join the Senate. I mean, that was one of the, the funny clips of the day. But I mean, these people did a, were doing a pro job at delaying. And I think we all saw that. And that just makes them come off to be even more squirmy and dislikable, you know, if Again, you have these lawyers up there. I know you're, it's nervous for those people. You know, you're afraid of a lawsuit down the road. So you want to be very careful with your answers because, again, if Robin says, hey, we made a mistake, you can know in the next complaint in a, law, in a class action lawsuit, he says, Robin Hood admitted to making a mistake. We are owed like X amount of dollars, right? But you have to balance that out with the loss of customers and the loss of faith in your platform, right? If every single person on Wall Street bets is watching this testimony, and you're, you sound like a complete idiot up there and in contempt of your customers, you're going to lose, you know, people and they're going to go to fidelity and they're going to go to other places. And I don't know, I think as a duty as a CEO, you have, you, you may say something, you know, that hurts your legal case, 
but you if you just sound completely stupid you're gonna you're gonna hurt your business as a whole and i don't know maybe i guess the, the balance is like hey maybe not very many people watch cnbc you know hey if i just start delaying you know this isn't gonna end up on like the evening news or anything like that but i don't know i i certainly lost i i would certainly i would certainly agree with your grade for for vlad in this whole thing and i would certainly i think citadel I mean, again, they're probably not under as much pressure as Vlad is. I mean, Citadel's place in the market seems to be pretty you know, stable. There's not much they can do to do that. But I think there was one interesting question to Citadel, and I can't remember which congressman asked it. But basically, said like, if you have a fidelity order and you have a Robinhood order, right? You know, what's going to get what's going to what's going to happen with those two orders? Is somebody going to get a better deal than the other one, right? And basically, I think he was forced into a position where he had to like again kind of dodge the question, not answer it straightforwardly, but basically say if he admits to saying that one gets preferential treatment, right? Then that basically admits like the whole system is rigged. And channels if he said, matter. Channels matter. Yeah, that's what he is. That what he said? Yes. That's what he, he said. Channels matter. He couldn't say. He couldn't say everybody <laughs> knows it. Channels matter. Yeah. So then there, there's your answer. I mean, he couldn't say it straight out. But that. So, but essentially, yeah. What he was saying when he said channels matter is yes. If you pay us enough, you get a better channel. So you get executed first. That is exactly what he was saying. Go read it in uh, in dark pools. You can get the inner work workings of the uh, of the market there. We're going to link to that. That's a very important book for somebody that wants to actually understand a little more of these different channels and everything. Dark pools, got a must read if you really want to get into the weeds on this stuff. It's a good read, very entertaining. I enjoyed it, uh, but I'm definitely a nerd and love getting into the weeds on this. But uh, but yeah, channels matter essentially means these guys got a better deal than this guy because they paid for it. Yeah, so just everybody who's a Robinhood user just realize that too. Or whatever platform you realize, you know, there's diff- there's a difference between these these things. And maybe it doesn't matter, you know, on the scale that we're trading at as retail traders, you know, and these massive volumes, but it adds up over time, right? And so that's something, and, and you have choice, right? If you could choose a broker, you know, that, you know, that ha- that's maybe executes better than the other broker. I mean, you know, why choose the other one, right? I mean, I guess we, we all have choice here, right? And I guess that's the, the point in this, but it certainly revealed this inner layer. And I think, what will be interesting going forward is if, again, I think there's a lot of harp on transparency. Man, we all want transparency. Keith is like, Keith Gill wants transparency. Robinhood wants transparency. You know, Citadel, that, yeah, let's give everybody retail investors transparency. So why don't we have every brokerage, you know, tell us, you know, how that order or payment for order flow works and, you know, and how that affects your orders and, you know, how much we're getting from that. And everybody transparently say that. So Fidelity, if I'm using you, you give me that information, you know, and then we can put a comparison chart together of all these, all these brokerages, right? And we could truly see, you know, you know, how they compare on this metric. I mean, I think that would be great to see. I think, I think it'd be very entertaining. I'd love to see that as a project put together. Um, it would probably be somebody like, they would all disclose it a little bit differently and somebody would have to figure out what the, what the differences are. Um, Cause I think there is some variation. It's not always an exact per share. So that there is some variation based on like what the market maker can get. Like if they can make a quarter of a penny, they'll give them a rebate of a 10th of a penny. But if they can make half a penny, they'll give them a rebate of a quarter penny, stuff like that. I'm not, I'm making numbers up. Don't hold me yeah, to those. Yeah, you're, you're right. So it's like, yeah, by what security am I buying at? What time of day am I buying it at? You know, what's the other, I mean, yes, right. There's a lot of variables, but we, maybe we could take some averages or, you know, if I was a research firm, it's like, okay, like everybody who bought Apple this day, you could, okay, small cap, large cap, mid cap, you know, something that's liquid, illiquid, not liquid and run this experiment and see what you get. And I just oh. kind of be curious. Yeah, but I'm with you. I think more disclosure would absolutely help. Um, it might even, be, yeah, if more disclosure, you're right. More disclosure would help because I think there could be some really smart people that could come in and, and look at the numbers and crunch them a little bit and get a more fair comparison. I want to 
back up. I want to disagree with you on something. You said that you would, de- if you were a member of Congress, you demand these yes or no answers. I think a lot of those, it goes back to some of the ignorance that some of the members of Congress had. A lot of them asked questions that couldn't be answered in yes or no. And I think that was more on the Congress people than it was on the people answering. Because you knew that some of them were just a little too complex of questions to give a direct yes or no to. So I'm going to kind of give the CEOs a little bit there. Okay. Okay. So in context, this is if I were a congressman and I would be asking a fair yes or no question, but you're right. If I had to give, if I had to give a grade to the Congress people, because like, again, Vlad gets a grade, you know, Keith gets a grade. I wouldn't give Congress the best grade either. And I think you're right. Some questions, you know, you can frame a yes or no question that you sound terrible in the yes or no, right? You can frame it in such a way that it's, it's a complicated answer, right? That it doesn't, there's a shade of yes or no. But I think there were certain questions that were asked that either you could have been yes or no, and it was very easy to answer. And so I'll, I, I think there's some questions that, again, people had to, had, had to dodge or else they would look you know, bad. So I, I think one was, just going back to Vlad's testimony, because again, this is one of the one that I paid attention the most. It's like, you know, they, they give this metric of, you know, our users have made $35 billion. I don't know if you saw this exchange. Yes, yes, I love this. All right, yeah, this is a good one. Okay, so maybe, yeah, you want to describe what was happening in that conversation? I mean, I just think this is hilarious. I, either Robinhood doesn't have so the, the congressman is basically saying, oh, okay, you're helping all these people. And you say that, oh, man, they collectively, they've made $35 billion. Well, like, you know, what kind of rate of return is that? You know, we need to know, like, if this is the numerator, what is the denominator, right? $35 billion out of what? Did they turn $1 into $35 billion? Did they turn, like, you know, $100 billion? Like, did they make extra $35 billion off that? What was there and over, like, what time? So is this better than the S&P 500? Is this worse than the S&P 500? The guy could not, Vlad could not give any kind of answer. Vlad, that Vlad continued to argue that that, he goes, that money would have been used elsewhere he goes that it would have been you know it would have been spent so he goes that's how you have to compare it or to set a savings account so he th- but i think that's also i think he i think he overgeneralized his uh his user base by saying something like that because guess what some people were going to come to the market anyways and they just happened to find robin hood as the easiest way to get to it so i as a congressman i don't care that's your Okay, yeah. So maybe that's the truth. I don't care. What's the out of thirty-five billion? I want to know what that's answer. I don't care if they would have like been, you know, what, what is the thirty-five billion off of? Okay, but I think like, you're right. I hundred percent agree. They should be able to provide what it was the total deposits. If he's going to throw that thirty-five billion dollars out there over and over and over again, because he did it multiple times throughout the hearing, and say our users uh, have have made thirty-five billion dollars collectively. I would love to know. Yes, what were the deposits? And then let the smart people. You know, obviously, you know, you're going to get some negative or positive headlines out of it. But then you can also compare that to um, you can compare it to E-Trade. What's their deposits? What's their net increase? So, so I think the only reason you hide this number is if it's not good, right? Exactly. <laughs> and so like, you know, maybe it's a very small percentage of users that have made this money. Maybe this is like worse than a savings account. You know, yeah, who knows? Trillion, if they have a trillion dollar in deposits, that's three and a half percent. That's nothing, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I mean... So, okay. So Vlad, I mean, I think he has to give that number, even if it is a trillion, like, and if his point is, well, this would have been money wasted anyway, then it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it was a trillion or 2 trillion, right? You've made those people $35 billion. You know, if that's what you're going to hang your laurels on Vlad, you should be happy, right? That you've, you've net, they're not negative $35 billion, right? So exactly. And if it is three and a half percent, then he can still say that three and a half percent is better than they do in a savings account and better. It'd be better if they went and spent it. But yeah, like I said, I think for as much as he wanted to argue about how, you know, our customers were, are buy or our users, our users are buy and hold. And they're very, you know, there's all these different things about them. And then not being able to answer that, he basically was trying to like, he was trying to say how smart they were on one hand and trying to say how dumb they were on the other hand. Yes. Yeah. So um, I will know, I want to know one more thing about, about Robin Hood. Cause you said, you know what, 
Vlad kind of, you know, made him, you didn't like his testimony and you'd, you'd rather him see him, you know, pander to his base a little more, but it doesn't, I, 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 I agree with you in principle. That would be nice. But the, the free market has spoken as people were ha- hashtag delete Robin hood and everything. And 10,000 people a day were deleting Robin hood. They were signing up 600,000 people a day. So it, any publicity is good publicity. Robin Hood's making out like fat cats, fat cats on this, no matter how how you cut it. Oh yeah, I mean yeah, I mean I think Robin Hood's gonna do probably just fine. I mean, so here's the interesting thing. So I know that I I subscribe to Wall Street Bets. I'm looking at Fidelity. So I know there's a million cookies on my computer that tell people this. I saw a million ads for Robin Hood like on my Facebook feed, on my uh, you know uh, on my Reddit. You know, like they were targeting me to be like it's like an apology type. You know. You know, they, they got this huge infusion of cash on that on that those days, and I'm sure a giant percentage of that went to PR to try to fix the brand for Robinhood, you know, and try to you know appeal to people to keep their accounts or open new accounts. And um, you know, to be fair, I, I mean, Robinhood's built a pretty good business. They've got a you know a good UI. They've done a lot of good for people. I just think, to me personally, there are better choices, and the CEO could have performed, done a better job. Vlad could have done a better job throughout this whole thing, and that's maybe just frustrating for me to watch. That like it just bothers me that some basic questions couldn't be answered and that you couldn't just provide this information. You know, I, I think that just demonstrates poor leadership and that just bothers me. I don't, I just, dishonesty and hypocrisy bother me. And so that just, it just bothers me when he says that. I, and so I, I can't, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't put my money in Robin Hood. It just, it, it's, it just, it just bothers me. I'm with you. I do have an account, but I don't have any cash in Robin Hood. I mean, I've got an account at virtually every brokerage out there. So uh, but I, I'm with you. You know, they didn't, he, he didn't answer the questions. Well, I wouldn't put money into that account. I don't have any faith in him. I would have a lot more faith in a, in a CEO that admits when they screw up. You know, one of the things I've always told or dealt with, you know, I, I was in manufacturing for a while and you can't, you can't hide your mistakes there. You either deliver or you don't. If the product does not show up on the date you promised and you don't deliver, it's that simple. You can make excuses and everything, but if you don't show up and a couple of my customers, you know, my, my clients knew that my customers understood that too. Um, but they also understood the value of communication ahead of time. When we did screw something up, when something was going to be delayed to let them know ahead of time, was this such a huge thing? Um, a couple of, a couple of my very understanding customers were saying, you know, everybody screws up, but it really shows who you really are is how you handle that screw up when it happens. So yeah, you have to take ownership of it. And this is maybe this is even more to your point. So this is a question directly asked to Vlad. What mistakes did you make? Okay, if you said, oh, we made all these mistakes and we're going to do better. What mistakes did you make? Define clearly the mistakes you made, Vlad. Here's your chance. Here's your chance to apologize to the world, to list your mistakes out. Couldn't do it. Couldn't answer the question. Okay, you were given a shot. It was, this is the most, if you're doing prep for this hearing, this has got to be in the prep, okay? And like completely unprepared for that question, completely couldn't answer that question, completely dodged the question. And so he, wasn't, he was prepared for that because he was, he dodged it so well. He was completely prepared. I mean, for I admitted like trying, like, I want to try harder. Like what, what, yeah. what is this? What's, what's your, that's like a job interview. What's your biggest flaw? I'm too dedicated to work. Right. Exactly. It's just, yeah, I just try too hard. Yeah. I'm just going to throw my family under the bus. I'm just going to be here at the job every day. You know, that yeah, it sounds so, you know, not, not genuine, not honest, not, you know, any kind of, you know, um, you know, feels, you know, uh, empathy with your customer or your, sorry, your users. Um, and so it just, it just, it just sounded terrible. I mean, and so anyways, another, you know, you lose points for that massively, Vlad. Yeah. 
So what about some of the other people? Did you, you have any thoughts on uh, Gabriel Plotkin, the CEO of Melvin Capital, the ones that lost, uh, I don't know how many to- untold you know, billions of dollars? You know, I, I, I think he came off better than Citadel. I mean, he kind of just admitted like this is, I mean, I, I think in his testimony, he said, in his opening statement, he said like all these like, you know, th- death threats and other kind of, I think he overblew those kind of comments, you know, and those are, I think that, I mean, I don't know what he did, but like, it's the internet. I'm sure maybe some people said some negative things to you, but like, you know, to draw this massive attention on that, like I'm poor me, you know, I'm, I, you know, oh man, the internet hates me. Okay. You know, yeah, painting yourself as a victim, you know, and, and you're the, like, you know, a multi-billionaire at this, you know, hedge fund, you know, that made a mistake. I mean, to, to be honest, I don't think he had too many of a challenging questions, you know, or anything like that. And I think he's going to do just fine. You know, his firm got rescued, you know, okay. That was the other question. It's like, did you get bailed out? And it's like, no, people are just, you know, buying, you know, it's like buying on the dip, right? They just buying dip, the dip, buy, yep. <laughs> just dip bought by, you know, firm, you know, I have a really good successful track record, you know, and I think I learned my lesson from, you know, shorting things. I think I'm going to go long. You know, he seems like a smart guy. I'm sure he's going to do fine. And he didn't say anything you know, totally crazy on the day of. And, you know, I, I remember his background. I think he had like an HP printer to his side. You know, it just looked like he went into his corner office and I was like, okay, I'm just going to take my beating for the day and, you know, move on with my life. <laughs> looked, I, I agree with you. He kind of looked like, you know what? This sucks. I, I, because not only is he coming off of a multi-billion dollar loss, which is embarrassing, even for hedge fund managers, you know, they make money when they, when their clients make money, when their customers make money. And so, you know, he's got to make a lot of money back. And that that is uh, a tough pill to swallow. I don't doubt that for any stretch of the imagination. To paint yourself as a victim is kind of, yeah, a stretch. Um, I'm like, oh, you're going to have to sell your third home in the Hamptons. You know, I don't, like I said, I have a hard time feeling bad for this. I mean, I, I, I think it's funny. It's like, oh, you know, like my fund, we just represent the pension funds and the colleges and the retirees. You know, we're just these good guys with, you know, handling the public's money, you know, and it's like, oh, you should feel bad for me. And it's like, no, no one feels bad for you, man. But like, he, he, but he didn't do anything egregiously dishonest in the testimony or didn't try to hide the ball. He seemed to answer like pretty straightforwardly, even if he's kind of resigned to his fate, you know? So I, again, I don't hold anything against the guy after the hearing. I, I don't know. I'm with you. I think he came out and, and I think he played for being a, you know, hedge fund, wall street billionaire. He came off, he came across as uh, as a beat dog, which I mean, that's kind of what he was. He came into it. He knew that he had screwed up. I think it's smart. He, like, again, your, ba- your background matters. Like what you chose as your Zoom background. Again, I think this is Congress has had interesting choices of Zoom backgrounds and like microphones and not understanding how to mute the mic. Again, Congress, you lose points for not understanding how Zoom works because you should be doing this all the time. But like, you know, different people put different things in their background. And so like, you know, he just chose this like broke, it looks like a broken HP printer and like a desk, right? He was going to like some, you know, kind of old room in like, you know, office room. I don't know, but he didn't, he didn't come off with this like super rich hedge fund vibe. You know, he didn't have the fancy sculptures behind him or the fancy bookshelf. You know, he didn't go crazy like Keith Gill and put the, you know, the bandana behind him. He just kind of, you know, okay, my hedge fund's beaten down. I got this old, old office, you know, with this old printer next to me. Uh, that's what I thought of, you know, and he did fine. Yeah, he did fine. Uh, do, do you want to describe your background? My background? Record? We are, we're recording on Zoom. Full disclosure, we record on Zoom. We can see each other. Okay, how about we, at the special, the special segment of the day, we both describe our backgrounds because I know yours has an interesting history too. Okay. So we'll do that. All right. Fair enough. All right, so we'll get to backgrounds. That'll be the special segment of the day. Um, do you want to give Keith, uh, or Ken, I'm sorry, Kenneth Griffin, Ken Griffin, do you want to give him a rating? The the one with five lawyers in the room and the nice, the nice plants in the background? I mean, he, I would say this, you know, okay, he's not going to lose any customers over this. I don't think he's going to lose any business or any customers. He might have some bad regulations heading his way due to this thing. But I mean, 
and again, I, I think a lot of people don't like, you know, he was able to dodge questions. He was able to fil- filibuster very effectively. And he wasn't able, and he, I think there were some traps that were laid for him. Again, if he answers honestly, you know, he kind of admits to not say criminal, but to, admits to that the market is set up unfairly if he answers honestly, right? And if he answers dishonestly, he's lying. So he has to answer, so he has to kind of dodge the question because then you kind of see it's kind of flaws in the system that are set up to benefit, you know, certain parties and, you know, that benefit, you know, and, so, you know, describing how payment for order flow works. So I think, you know, he, he does a lot of things like I, I'm really ha- I'm proud of my team and I'm proud of you doing these great things, you know, and I'm a great company and all this stuff. And, you know, and, you know it's a competitive free market and all that stuff. But again, I, you know, he has all the lawyers in the room. He did a good job, job dodging. He doesn't come off as honest or, you know, or trustworthy, you know, but is anything at him at stake? He doesn't have a, a business like Robinhood that interfaces with the public. So to, to him is, you know, I think if, if I were him and his lawyers, I would say, hey, look, you know, come off as generally likable, but don't do anything to jeopardize, you know, don't do anything that will, uh, that is admitting to any kind of criminal activity and don't do anything to admit, to, you know, to anything that like, you know, makes it seem like the system's set up unfairly or that you're, you know, you're improperly benefiting. So just dodge as much as you can. And that's what he did. So, I mean, I guess I gave him a, a neutral rating because I didn't, he didn't say anything that super impressed me, but he also didn't like, you know, sabotage his company and destroy his company, you know, in front of like millions of people watching today. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, his filibuster was, I think that he did a good job of filibustering that one question where it was basically the hypothetical conflict of interest. I do. I I still, I leave that. He knew exactly the question that was being asked though. And he managed to not answer it. And I think him not answering it spoke volumes though. I think that he left wide open. I think Congress, I think everybody left wide open that there is very much conflicts of interest between these companies, whether or not we know, or there's a potential conflicts of interest between these companies that they don't, they still have no idea how to close that, uh, how to close that gap. I mean, this is, I mean, this is common. And I guess if you watch presidential debates, I mean, you ask a question you can hang on. Oh, these first three words here, I'm just going to totally focus on those first three words or these last three words and ignore the heart of your question. Right. That's like, this is just a common political technique. This is a common lawyerly technique. When you have only five minutes, you can't get into the depth of it. I mean, that's a problem of the format, I guess, you know, if I was, again, if, if maybe the Republicans or Democrats could have like colluded together, it's like, okay, you ask this question. And if they don't get an acceptable answer, then I'll let it bleed into my time and I'll ask a follow-up. Right. You know, well, actually- I, think, I, I think that that's a really good point. That's one of the notes I have here is was that format the best when you have several dozen people in there and all get five minutes a piece. So it's like, as soon as you get any line of questioning, by the time you say, thank you. And by the time you thank a couple of people and everyone thanks everybody, you're down to three minutes and then one little filibuster and it's gone. So, and I think that Congress, and I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I'm pretty sure you can like hand your time over to other people. And so what I would have liked to see more is, th- but good point you made earlier is they all wanted their, they all wanted their five minutes of fame, right? They all wanted the opportunity to be out there and show, look at me doing this. So they lost a lot of the substance where if they all, if like 10 of them had said, okay, I'm all, I'm going to turn over my five minutes to this one person. And that way they can get an, a 45 minute line of questioning going, then you might've been able to actually get some substance out of it. Yeah. I, so I, I'm thing. with you. Format. Is that the best format for such a thing? It's it. End of the day. It was political, right? 
So this is what bothers me, me about Congress. I mean, so there are a lot of testimony and hearings like this, right? And so this is just being watched by so many people. So you're right. You want to get the headlines. You want to be reelected in your district. You don't want to say anything that'll piss off your constituents. You know, so if you, you know, if you have a bunch of Wall Street hedge funds in your district, you probably should be nice to the Wall Street hedge fund guys. So, you know, if Robinhood's in your district, you should probably be nice to the tech companies. If your companies, if your district's a bunch of poor people that hardly trade on the marketplace, you know, maybe you should be in favor of taxing all the heck out of these people and getting money to your district, right? You all have your own interests. But sometimes these hearings don't. You know, there's a lot of single issue voters in our country, or there's a lot of other things. Just for once, go beyond the politics of the situation. If we just go beyond that, oh my gosh, you would look so favorable in my eyes if you could just do that instead of trying to like give a three minute speech and then get a one minute question that's more of a speech in the form of a question and then like get nothing for the answer. And so, yeah, yeah that's oh, no, you need a yes or no. Like I just asked you a five minute question with 40 different caveats and then I expect you to answer that yes or no. But there, again, there are some obvious yes or no's, but again, the, to your point, yes, you can't. For something you can't, and I understand that. I, I think so. Here's maybe where I'd follow up. So I think Congress, again, they deviated on certain points. So I'm going to ask you maybe some questions about for you that maybe Congress posed to these people. And I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, Michael. So one, I think we talked about this accredited, unaccredited investor. So they you know there's this to be an accredited investor, you know, you have to have certain you know net worth excluding your house, and you have to or you have to have a certain income per year. Right. So then otherwise, without that, you can't invest in a Robinhood. You can't invest in like, you know, these privately held companies. You can't get unregistered securities. Right. So should we have accredited and unaccredited investors? Is that so this is seems tangential to the thing, but this is an issue that was brought up. And they asked these people. I don't know why they wanted their opinions, but they asked it and they put it out there. So your thoughts, Michael, about I think accredited it's investor. I think it's straight up on American. I think they made the good point of you can buy as many lottery tickets as you want. Why do you have to be so accredited? And, you know, it. Because even if you were going to put the money into the market in one way or the other, I think that unaccredited investors, I think people at that level should be able to at least pool their money. So, Michael, in- what about what about these like winter bill and people rolling trucks down hills, you know, taking poor investors money, you know, you know, in these, uh, you know, uh, you know, companies that don't have registered securities, they wouldn't be giving full disclosure to people. Wouldn't you be concerned from about my these fraudsters? From my understanding is that it's a, it's a United States of America problem to have accredited and unaccredited investors. This, from my understanding, is this does not exist. In other countries, you don't have these uh, these the barriers to entry the way it's set up. So could there be some issues? Um, I mean, it's possible, but we just don't see it anywhere else. So why it, like the pattern day trader rule? We don't. Nobody else has it. Nobody else has a problem with it. We still have it, and we're supposed to be. I mean, you know, go back to Michael Noss, who we had on our, our Canadian friend there. And he goes, yeah, you guys are the land of the free, but you got the pattern day trader rule. It doesn't make sense. So I just think you know what. Some people are going to lose money. People are people lose money on uh, on penny stock pump and dumps all the time. I don't see Congress here holding hearings about that. I don't see how it would be any any worse to just say, "Oh, once you have this much money, you're suddenly so much more qualified." So it's to me, I think. So they're saying, okay, to protect people, we're just going to prohibit it. I think there's other mechanisms like, hey, if there are people defrauding other people, like you can send them to jail, like maybe enforce that, or like maybe let people sue those people and get their assets, right? So you dissuade people from running these kind of schemes. I think, you know, that's kind of your remedy if you get, you know, swindled or stolen. Now, to prohibit you from making that investment at all or from buying the lottery ticket at all, I think that's not, that's like, you know, smashing the, 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 the ant, right? You know, you don't need that sledgehammer approach to the problem. You know, there's a a more delicate solution. Hey, when there are fraudsters and stuff, you take them out, you know, through our existing legal system. So I agree with you completely. It seems un-American to me. Um, anyways, just a full disclosure, I do work with startup companies, you know, and so maybe this would benefit my job. You know, I maybe I have a financial bias here, but you know, I, I agree in principle. Okay, so here's here's the next question. So other things they talked about in the hearing. What about a a, a transaction tax on like trading? So, you know, hey, 
you know, if you sell, you make a $1,000 trade, uh, 10 cents, 10 cents for the government every time you make $1,000 worth of trade, you know? So what do you think of that, Michael? You know, that was brought up. I, I think some of the higher numbers we've heard in the past might not work, but if it's so inconsequential like that, because what it's a, what's a thousand dollar trade making to the market makers, right? If it is, I believe, it, uh, I believe the Hong Kong stock exchange actually has that. And so I'm not entirely opposed to that. I would, uh, I would, I would be very interested to learn more about that, especially such a small inconsequential amount which it sounds like the market makers and the brokers are taking these small inc- inc- inconsequential amounts anyways. What's the extra nickel? If everyone takes a nickel out of my $1,000, you know, I'm not going to notice the difference as a retail trader. Yeah, I think, so I'm I not think- entirely opposed. I'm, but I think, you know, I mean, Bernie Sanders, I'm very entertained by him. I think he's got some good points, but he, had, he proposed like a half percent tax, which would dry up liquidity. Very, very quickly, half a percent tax on every in and out. That means you start every single trade down 1%. No, I'm sorry. That's not going to work. But very, very small, minuscule pieces of pennies coming out. The market makers, the brokers, everybody's already taking their little pieces. If the government took a piece of the penny, I don't think it would have any major impact on retail. It may have impacts on the high frequency traders. Yeah. So I think, yeah, you bring up a good point about liquidity. So if we have this, you know, it's not just... The retail traders that are trading, right? There's some some high free. So the bid ask spread could widen potentially if you do this. But I guess right depends on the magnitude of the tax. If you put a higher tax, that means there's probably less of it. If you put a lower tax, there'd still be still be more of it. So you know what is the you know again the Goldilocks number of you want there to be liquidity, but not you know you know but able to get some revenue for the government. And then again, what do you use that tax revenue for? You know, are we giving financial literacy to Americans? Are we doing something you know positive with that money? I mean, who knows? But I think you're right. I think that's something worth at least exploring. And I say this as someone who's like, you know, most free trade person you'll ever, you know, meet. But uh, I don't know. I thought it was an interesting proposal too. But I think I think you made some really good points about it. It's something worth studying to see, you know, what are those downstream effects are. I, but it was interesting that the answers that the people gave um, universally, I think, you know, Vlad and Citadel was like, no, that is a bad idea. You know, Vanguard did a study. That's their money. That's their money. They're making <laughs> that nickel on a thousand dollars. They're the ones skimming these. They're, little they're like, oh man, you know, every time you do this, it's just going to take from the retirements of Americans. You're, you know, so many few Americans. It's going to take two years off the retirement income of all. You know, of, I was like, I don't know where you're pulling those numbers from. That seems a little extreme, but uh, it's interesting. An interesting debate that came out of this uh, discussion. So you know, again, that was. I did want to, so I, I did criticize the right and their grandstanding earlier. I want to make sure I criticize the left and their their grandstanding. One of the things they kind of kept asking was like, you know, how do how do we know people are making good decisions? And we kind of we we. Talk, I think end of the day, if you were to, I mean, what what would be the solution to that? So I go to E Trade, right? I go to E Trade. I log in in the morning. I say, okay, I want to buy a thousand shares of you know uh, this Bitcoin stock. Let's say Mara, for instance. Yeah, so it's Marathon Patent Group, everybody. Marathon Patent Group. Right? Yeah, Marathon Patent Group. So I want to buy a thousand shares Monday morning. I decide I want to go and buy it. Like, do I, I, you know, right now I have to say, okay, I want to buy a thousand shares limit. I have the cash. It, do you, are you sure you want to? Yes. Right. What would be the next level? Would they say, okay, what do you believe? Like, is the next screen going to say, what do you believe their earnings is going to be in five years from now? What do you have? And then another screen is like, what evidence do you have to support this? Like, and then what? Do you send that information off to a government agency who then evaluates your analysis and approves it or disapproves it? I'm going slippery slope here, but I think to say you have to have a certain level of sophistication. It goes back to the same problem we have with, with uh, you know, access to hedge funds or private equity is, you know, 
just because you have less money does not mean you're less sophisticated. Yeah, you're you're right. And I I think again when I say financial literacy in my previous comment, I mean I think people have different versions of what that means in their head, right? And I think certain people in Congress are like, you know, oh man, everyone should only be limited to buying, you know, S&P 500 companies. You know, that's just, that's what investing is. That's why nobody should be on these platforms, you know, doing anything other than that. No one should be buying GameStop. You know, that's just ridiculous, right? And I get, I think, yeah, right to the point. It's, you know, it's a free market, but I don't think there's anything generally wrong with people having more access to information and being, you know, in your K through, you know, high school education to have one class about, you know, how does the stock market work? Like, what is a share? You know, what is a buy? What is a sell? Okay. Another hilarious moment in the, in the testament where this brings me up <laughs> to Vlad's point. So somebody asked, you know, you restricted trading. Sorry, this is just about buying and selling. They just asked the question, when people can't buy and people can only sell, what happens to the price of a stock when people can only sell and can't buy? Couldn't answer the question. Okay. <laughs> I get it. It's like, oh, this is some, I'm not going to answer a hypothetical. So you can't answer when people sell things more than they buy them. Which direction does it go? Like, that's the, that's the question I would have asked. And like, literally can't answer the question. Well, that, yeah. And Vlad was trying to say, oh, well, our users only represented a small fraction of the buyers that day. But then my question, right? What fraction does it take? How many buyers versus sellers does it take? It takes 51% buying pressure versus 49% selling pressure for a stock to go up. Remove 2% of the buying pressure and the stock goes the other direction. I just said, hey, Vlad, okay, I know you're trying to, you're trying to answer this other way in a way that you're not answering. My question is, when more people are selling and less people are buying, what happens, Vlad? What happens? Like, and I'm going to leave that back at Congress's feet. They, they did not ask that right question. But you're right. That, that question was not properly asked during the hearing. But yeah, it goes to show exactly what the the root of the whole problem was, right? Was end of the day, it looked, the whole situation stunk. It didn't pass the smell test. And end of the day, the CEO of Citadel and the CEO of Robinhood did not properly uh, answer what the problem was. You know, you had, but uh, you had half the committee say, well, government's the problem. So it was tough to get much beyond that. I, I think it would have been funny if Congressman, hey, hey, Keith Gill, uh, it seems like Vlad's not able to answer this question. Uh, can you tell us what happens when, when more people sell a stock than buy it? What happens to the price of the stock? <laughs> you know, your expert opinion, Roaring Kitty. I, I think that would have been hilarious. But I, I think again, I, Keith was kind of keep a low profile, you know. <laughs> one, one congressman did point out, he goes, you know, we're all sitting here saying that this is what's best for the retail and this is what's best for the retail. He goes, we have one retail trader sitting here and nobody's asking you questions. That's right. So, you know, I think he was scoring a little bit of political points. I don't know if uh, he just knows he's got a lot of wall street bets people there <laughs> in his district. So he was, he was pandering to him. He didn't have any like real legitimate questions, but he, I like the fact that he actually brought, tried to bring Keith back into the conversation. Yeah, I, I actually, I didn't know if Keith would get any questions. Cause like, again, I see the, the people, the list of people, it's like, what kind of, if you're a congressman, what kind of question do you ask Keith? And, and to be fair, the Reddit CEO didn't really get, he didn't really get questions about this. I guess, I guess he got more questions about, you know, and this again, seems not the right hearing, but they, you know, we've had the Facebook hearing, we've had the Twitter hearing, you know, I guess like, what is the role of free speech on the internet? And again, I thought he did a good job answering that, but La last witness, I want, I want to get your opinion. We have, we've not even mentioned her, Jennifer Schlupp from the, the Cato Institute. So I don't, uh, I don't do know how she got on the panel. Like, so Cato is, you know, it's kind of a, a libertarian think tank, right? Kind of conservative, you know, they, I mean, again, they do some overlap, but it's, you know, generally free markets is their approach. But I'm surprised they didn't have someone from the Brookings Institute to balance that out. So I don't know how she gets on the on the panel versus say some other think tank or some other, as I don't know how they choose the panel members, but I thought- Hers, I, I'm with you. I think, cause it's a three part hearing. I don't think we mentioned that. It was a three part hearing. Hearing one was the witnesses. Let's, let's hear from the players. 
uh, hearing two is supposed to be, let's hear from some industry experts uh, that weren't directly involved that can give us opinion. And I feel like she would have fit better into that panel. Um, and then the third hearing, I believe, is when Congress is going to talk amongst each other and determine if they want to uh, recommend any legislation. So, I, yeah, she, I don't know. She didn't do a bad job. She answered the questions, honestly. I, I think she represented herself and Cato Institute well. Yeah, I, I thought she was a voice of reason. Like people ask like, okay, you know, we need a neutral player to explain how this law works. Let's ask the neutral, like she appears to be neutral or they say, oh, what do you think the effect of this would be? And then she would be like, in my opinion, you know, I remember this one who's like, here's a really complicated question. You have 12 seconds to answer it. And she was like, I will try my best in 12 seconds to answer your like super complicated question. And like, <laughs> yeah. so it's just like, okay. I, yeah, I thought she represented herself well. I thought she represented Cato well. I, yeah, I was like, Google searching her during this thing. I was like, well, no, what's her background? Like, you know, and she, you know, she, of course, like all the people there, you know, some amazing, you know, credentials, you know, obviously super smart people. But yeah, I thought she, I thought she did a good job. Well, I love the fact, I even love the witness list. If you go to the, uh, if you pull the witness list off of the uh, House Services Committee website, everybody's got all these credentials next to them, except for Keith Gill. It's just Keith Gill. <laughs> Keith Gill, yeah, exactly. Beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> so. Well, I mean, that's the hearing. That's hearing one of three. I think it's I think it's good that we're talking about this. I want to continue and make sure people have information. Hopefully you got uh, anyone that's listening, you know, you got something out of our one hour summary uh, that we took out of it as being retail investors, as being market participants, as being independent, uh, independent in the political uh, scheme of things. So you don't have to watch the whole five and a half. I, 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 again, I, I think there were some cute political moments, you know, like for instance, they called the Robin Hood helpline like live during the I testimony. Loved that. I loved that. That was great. <laughs> like that was yeah, that was great political theater. There, it's like oh, I guess I'm getting a busy signal. Like no one's here. No, they got well, <laughs> or they got the, they got the automated. Called, yeah, he yeah. called it, and they there. You just got a recording that said, "Please send us a message online." Goodbye. Like that was it was just yeah it was, yeah. It was the automated never got recording. to hear to a person. That was a great move. I forget the congressman that did that, but that was a good move. I like. Yeah, that. I mean that could have totally backfired. What if somebody would have picked up? They would be like, "Man, really great Robin Hood service." You know, like I would. Right. I don't know. Maybe a Robin Hood. I'd be like, "Okay, every person a congressman. Like, here are all the numbers. Like, you have to let this go through to a person." Like, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they had called beforehand. Like, I don't. That was that was scripted. It was. Well scripted, but it served, I think it served a good point though. It, it, it definitely, it got the point across. And even though it was definitely uh, a political grandstanding kind of moment, it did, it was relevant to the situation. So and maybe it's maybe, I mean, again, not a laughing matter, but they did talk about the suicide, you know, with that trader. And we've talked about that on our show too. And I, I think that was a serious topic of discussion during the hearing. And I think, again, there was a lot of talk about, again, gamification of Robin Hood and, you know, and, and that sort of thing. And so I do think, you know, that, that is, you know, a legitimate point. And maybe, maybe this wasn't the hearing to do it, but I, I do, you know, I, I think everyone feels for that family and that kid that did that. And, um, you know, is there something that Robin Hood could do better? Is there something that we could all do as a society better, you know, maybe, but something, I mean, uh, certainly a difficult conversation that was addressed a little bit in the hearing. Yeah, and I, since you mentioned it, end of the day, I do not believe that if he was trading on TD Ameritrade or E-Trade, or Fidelity, or any of the major brokerages that have a call number, which right now they're all backed up really, really bad because the volatility and the volume is absolutely skyrocketed. But at that time, you could get through to your broker in a in a matter of a few minutes. Yeah, I think yeah, they got back to him in like twenty four hours later. It was, just, it was just way too late. And so, yeah, I mean, I know Fidelity. I mean, that's why I use it. Maybe they're not the best, but they always have at least every time I've called their customer service and they have a, uh, actually a really good chat feature. Like you can just chat, like, it's just like, um, you know, old AOL instant messenger, you can find some dude and you know, they're, you're chatting pretty fast. And I've always gotten 
like you know pretty good service. I don't know what experience you've had with TD Ameritrade. I knew I know you, you think or swim you know for the majority of your trading. I've never actually to call them. Um, a couple of weeks ago, there was I had a, a, something I had to talk directly to E Trade about, and this was during the huge market volatility. My thing was completely unre- unrelated to the market volatility. And I did have to wait an extraordinary long time. They actually called me up. Robo called me and said, please hit us up on chat to resolve this issue. And I hit him up on chat. And as soon as I finished trading, I finished at 1030. I hit him up on chat and they said, okay, you're in line. And I got to chat at about three o'clock in the afternoon. So oh, I never goodness. called them. And, and the one th- now I did call, actually I had to call them on the same issue. Um, and uh, I had to call them earlier in the week for the same thing. And I did have to wait on hold about 45 minutes to connect to an actual human being. And during the middle of all the market volatility, previous times I've had to call E-Trade, um, I've gotten through in a matter of less than five minutes. Yeah. So I, I, again, so I guess all the services have, you know, it de- you know, depending on the day, depending on the situation, it's, your, it's a challenge to get to customer service, especially in a you know, high volume. You know, if you're a power company in Texas, you probably got a million phone calls headed your way, way more than normal. I mean, I guess the other, you know, thing I think, again, trying to fix things, you know, I'm, again, I'm all for letting people trade. I'm all, even options, you know, I think that's fine to trade. Um, you know, I'm not there, but, I, and again, you know, what level of education, I mean, that's open for debate. But I think, again, showing, you know, your positions accurately on a platform, I think that's kind of an important thing, you know, an important feature that your app should have. And if you're not doing that, that maybe makes you liable for people that, you know, assume information based on what they see. And so, you know, if we're going to learn a lesson from this, you know, that terrible event, you know, maybe the lesson is, hey, we should have, you know, accurate information displayed on our app so that people know their positions and you know and again i don't know what you know there's probably other issues in that individual's life and what's going on you know maybe this was like you know one part of many but you know if there's lessons we can take away you know maybe having accurate information on our app would be you know one of the key lessons absolutely 100 percent agreed anyways right. on a, okay on a lighter note special segment of the day you want to go first want to tell the tell listeners what what is behind you Right now, Michael Johnson. All right, behind me, I have four items total. Uh, one of them, that nice bright gold thing, is my belt buckle. Uh, I got that from running a thousand K last year. Now, I did not run that all at once. It was over the course of a couple of months. Uh, I started it before my daughter was born, and actually, like, I only had a few miles to go. It was funny. A friend of mine is even texting me when I was in the hospital because he was like, he was monitoring my progress. He's like, dude, you got. You got seven days and you have five miles to go. And I just texted him back a picture of the baby. I'm like, I can't leave, you know? <laughs> so, but I did manage to finish my thousand K. So I'm hanging up. Uh, if, and you, you're familiar with, they give you a belt buckle when you complete a uh, extraordinary long race. I don't, I don't wear belt buckles, but I hung it on the wall. I don't know that anybody actually wears these things either. So I, I, I've never seen anyone wear their, their mileage belt buckle around. I think most of them people do just kind of display it in a display case or put it on a metal rack or something like that. So that that's hanging up behind me because I'm very proud of that. Uh, besides that, I've got a little folding knife that's hanging there. I don't know if you can see that well, um, this knife was actually, it's pretty, uh, I don't know, it's pretty old school. It's got some wood. It's got some metal inlay on it as but it's a wood handle metal inlay made in South Africa. Uh, and I actually got this from the tent of some bad guys in Iraq. We had missed them by a matter of minutes. We found a cache of about uh, 20 uh, or so AK-47s. Uh, we, we flew in a helicopter because we were we were had information that there was uh, some sort of bad guy activity in the area. We got there. That knife was there. You know, 
the AK-47s, I wasn't allowed to take one of those, but they were, they let me take uh, kind of a spoils of war little trophy there, uh, my little uh, folding knife. So I have that uh, hanging up as well. Uh, and we, we, all, we barely missed them. You know, the, the tea was left boiling. So, you know, we missed them by a matter of minutes. Uh, also hanging on the wall, I've got a, this little, my first gold investment. I have a very, so I've got like a 10th of an ounce of gold right here. And I got that, got that hanging on the wall just because I'm not, I don't know. I'm not going to sell it. It's a piece of gold, whatever. I'm, I'm long gold for the record. I have a 10th of an ounce. <laughs> and then uh, the last piece here, there's a, a, a circular metal disc. This is also from my Marine Corps days. I was an anti-tank missile man. And you, know, the, you have these big, long missiles that are like three foot long. And they come in these tubes and they have a, the, a metal cap on it. Well, actually, on the, just on the front end, you have to take the cap off to put the missile into the into the launcher. And one of this, that's kind of like the souvenir that you take when you take uh, a shot. So this is actually a combat shot. I shot one. I shot one of these missiles in Iraq uh, on my first tour. I shot it inside the city of Fallujah. And that is the uh, that is the cap. So at least, what were you what were you aiming at when you were shooting that missile? A house. Okay. Yeah, we, you, I don't know the particulars of it. Like basically, a lot of time, you know, you rely on it's it's a whole team effort, and you don't have a lot of times to ask questions. Like you don't, you know, basically, there were some guys a couple blocks ahead, and they came back and said, "Can you shoot? Can you take out that house?" And I said, "Sure." And, Is it clear? And I said, "Yeah." And I shot a missile, and I, I hit the house. So <laughs> it was very. Uh, yeah, this is not you like followed a, the orders. You did it in a timely fashion. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So you know, I so I kept. I, I, wonder, I wonder how much one of those missiles costs the U.S. taxpayer. I'm curious. Uh, less, my, the quote they gave me was about $12,000 a piece. Okay. There you so, go. Which is, there's more expensive. Like the Javelin missile is about $85,000 a piece. So there's, there's definitely different – there's variations. I mean, I don't even know how – those are, those are held by the infantry. You know, we carry those around on the ground. Uh, like a Tomahawk missile, I think, goes into the – might go into the million. I'm not totally sure. So these little missiles are pretty – simple in the grand scheme of things at a, at a price tag of $12,000 a piece. So that that's my background. Just got a few random, random items hanging up. What, what do you got behind you? I, I like your items. I think those are, those all have really interesting stories behind them. So what's behind me is that my wife was very nice. And so throughout my years of running, which I really started actively in 2011, um, I, every time you run a race, you don't have to finish first. You just have to show up and cross the line and they will give you a medal. And it doesn't, from your local, from your everyday, from your 5K to your 100 miler, most races give you the, the medal. The, the, I guess the ultra marathons give you the buckle. And so I have a collection of medals behind me from just 5K races to half marathons, to marathons, to some ultra marathons. And so there's a lot of races behind me because I would run typically a lot of races. Not, not unfortunately, not very many 2020 races since those were all canceled. But, um, but yeah, from 2011 to 2019, these are, these are a collection of medals. Uh, behind me and they all have some you know cool artwork on them you know so a lot of them are from the american tobacco trail so i run that pretty much every every uh, year at the tobacco road marathon so they have a some kind of train usually on the uh the metal then i got some other ones um i did the philadelphia marathon so they have uh like their uh you know the capitol building there um that is that there's no liberty bell come on yeah i know i think this is like the word you know ro the rocky steps we're at you know oh, okay then, okay that's legit i got it and then uh yeah i got you know richmond they kind of just show their skyline there you know it's city of bulls so that's durham is the city of bulls so they have a bull on their uh you know on their on their uh metal um 
so yeah, some just different different ones. The Outer Banks, you know, did a what, marathon or two there. So, what is your favorite? It can be metal or non-metal. What's your favorite uh, like race swag? What's your favorite thing that you've gotten from a race? Oh man, what have I gotten? So I, to be honest, I think the food is the best part. So uh, at the end, so like if you ever go to a trail race, the price is incredible for if you ever do trail running because it's, it's a small community. It's not thousands of people. The trail is beautiful. The people are amazing. You talk to people during the race. So I've had some incredible experiences running trails and just enjoying the scenery and then eating the amazing aid station food. Oh man, so much good aid station food. And then, but I, I personally, Tobacco Road Marathon is local. I love running that local race. It's, you know, it's a few thousand people. It's not huge, but at the end they have unlimited pizza, which is amazing. And unlimited chocolate milk. Free pizza? Uh, no, probably not. It's Papa John's. So you could just can you yank the pepperonis off and the cheese off. Is that is that possible? Just just slurp up the top of it, Michael, and just ingest it. You know. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So, anyways, so I'm a I'm a fan of uh, I mean, because I'm a fan of the food. The, the medals. I think a lot of people think the medals are you know it's kind of some kind of waste, but I, I like them. I think they're kind of you know cool to put up on your wall. But um, I'll just another random note. So I think I might change the different things behind uh, my, my background. But um, one thing that's really cool is that my grandparents, uh, they, they've um, been kind of cleaning up their house. And so lately, they've, they've been collecting old newspapers throughout their lives. And so they're kind of sending me them as they've been going through them. And so I now got a newspaper um, from the date that uh, General Eisenhower died or President Eisenhower died. So I have his a big one newspaper of that. And then I have one where um, Truman died. So I have Truman's death. Apparently, this, these aren't very valuable, you know, collector's pieces. I looked up on the internet, but but it's, it's just kind of cool to have the newspaper there. And like, it's a 1972 newspaper. This is like a 1969 newspaper, you know, and it's, you know, newspaper my grandparents had. So I think I might start putting those kind of things up around my house too. I like that. I like that. No, I, we actually just recently hung um, some plates, they call them, from this book that I bought. Uh, in Chicago years ago. I just thought it was so cool. It's this architectural metal door company from like the early 1900s. And it was like, it was like the salesman book that he would carry around with him to show them the different kind of things, different, you know, products they could do. Uh, but, you know, they're big, they're 14 by 18 inches. Uh, so they're pretty big. The, the, the details on them are all like hand drawn and hand noted, you know, they're obviously they're copied. They're, they're, you know, they're Xeroxed or whatever they were doing at the time. So it's like, it's not the original hand drawn copy, but they also like include some pictures of the, of some of the finished products. They include some pictures of the building in there. So I'll show you, we just hung up for this weekend and I, I, I love it. I think it's so cool. So next time when I can have you over, hopefully I can have you over this year and, and show you my, uh, pictures yeah I, I love like the individual personality that people put into decorating their houses like you know whether it's metals whether it's paintings whether it's art whether it's sculptures you know whether it's plants i just love to see it all i love the you know people's expression of these things and so you know i'm, I'm kind of a history buff i like running so i just kind of put these things you know around our house my wife i think she looks a little bit more of the abstract art so we have some abstract art pieces around the house too and i i love looking at those too so but I, I think it's, it's a fun thing to see people's personality come out when they decorate their house. So I encourage anyone listening, just don't leave your walls blank, put something up there, you know, let, let people come into your house and, you know, get a piece of what you're, what you're about. Absolutely. Uh, I, I love this. I think it was a great conversation next week. We've got some really good guests. So definitely come back for that. And, you know, we'll see, we'll see the next couple of hearings on this. I think it's a fascinating time in the markets. There's still two congressional hearings to go on uh, on GameStop I don't know if the next couple are going to be as exciting but you know there's, there's there's still a lot going on this story has not ended yes exactly we can only hope more excitement get your popcorn ready you know warm it back up um 
and really appreciate you listening. This has been Trading for Keeps. I'm Brian. And this is Michael. Trading for Keeps is not intended as investment advice. It is only intended for entertainment purposes. We do receive some affiliate commissions from links in our show notes.